if you would do that. So with that, tonight we have the pleasure once again of having Maggie Keller preach the good word to us. So please welcome Maggie. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Um, Like Debbie said, my name is Maggie. I'm a member of the community here. Super glad to be with you all. Um, It's been kind of a hard week for us, lady preachers. If you have kept up with the current events in the church world at all, um, we had a, uh, a preacher who's sort of famous in the evangelical world, who told Beth Moore, who's another preacher, uh, to go home because she was a woman. So that was kind of weird for me because I, um, I am at home. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a stay-at-home mom to four kids. But this week I was also preparing this sermon. So I felt that tension. And at the end of this week, I'm just glad to be here with you all. It feels like uh, coming home, and I'm grateful for that. Matt and Debbie, um, You do a great job of mentoring those of us in this community and calling out our giftings and whether we're men or women. So I'm just glad to to be here with you all and I'm sure you're glad to be here with Debbie's leadership as well. Okay, so we've been in this series that we're calling Greater Than and it looks at the seven signs that Jesus performed, these miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. And in John 14, Jesus references all these signs, and he says to his disciples, his friends, see all this, all of this that I've done, this is nothing. When I leave, when I'm gone, you, for generations to come, you are going to go on to do things even greater than I've done. So tonight, we're going to be in John chapter 9. It should be a familiar story for you if you grew up in the church. Uh, It's the healing of the blind man using the mud. So because it's somewhat familiar for some of us, I'd like to read it out of the message paraphrase translation. I think that the message does this really great job of helping us see, (laughs) see what I did there, see with, with fresh eyes stories that would otherwise be familiar. So here's John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there's plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, go, wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. The man went and washed and saw. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? I kind of hate the disciples in this moment. Like, this seems really presumptive, right, for them to ask this question. But as I got into the context a little more this week, I learned that in the first century, this is a really normal line of thought for the disciples and for other Jewish people. Because in that time, there was this concept called determinism. The idea that if something bad happened to you, it was a result of sin. That someone somewhere along the way had messed up and that made you kind of end up in the state that you're in. 
like I said, determinism. This idea that your skin color, what you believe, who you love, how your body works or doesn't work, that all of that has an impact on your moral standing in society. So as much as the disciples seem kind of harsh in this moment with that question, uh, I realized as I thought through it that we kind of still ask these questions today, don't we? It's usually around tragedies. We usually, uh, like we see a tragedy like, um, like the earthquake in Haiti. My first question when something bad like that happens is not, what can God do? My question is often, why? And I, I hope I'm not alone, right? Do you all ask why sometimes when we see things like um, Hurricane Katrina? What, what happened here? Whose fault is that? Did we do something to cause this? Or worse, did God? So these, these lines of, of thought are natural even to us now. But Jesus catches the disciples with that questioning, and he kind of says, no, hang on. And he flips it on its head, and he says, this is not the right question. It made me think of that Mr. Rogers quote. Uh, when Mr. Rogers was young, his mom used to tell him, when something bad happens, look for the helpers. There are always people helping. Do you know this quote? So I, I thought of that because what Jesus says to his disciples is, look for what God can do. Look for God. The disciples were not looking for God at work. When they saw that man literally on the edge of the road, they just saw his blindness. They just saw his handicap. And they weren't looking to help him or to heal him. They just wanted to know, well, how, how did he end up here? How did he get to be in this, in this state? When they looked at him, he only amounted to his diagnosis. And if you carry a diagnosis in your physical body, do you ever feel like sometimes that's all you are? especially if that diagnosis is visible on the outside, and perhaps acutely if it's invisible, if it's only something you carry on the inside. When Jesus looked at this man, he did not see the diagnosis, and the diagnosis did not have the final word with Jesus. Jesus heals the man and later tells the disciples, you're going to go on to do even greater things. But this week, I'd like for you to consider the idea that you and I are not the healers in this situation. We're the healed. Because sight can only come to someone who knows that they're blind. And there are so many ways to be blind. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a mom of four kids. And I wish I had a dollar for every time I got asked the question, Mom, I can't find my blank. Have you seen it? my backpack, my shoes. They'll be standing in front of the open refrigerator going, where's the strawberry jam? And so I've created this game that we play and I call it, how many seconds will it take me to find the thing you can't find? It's a little bit of a rigged game because I always win and it's always less than 10 seconds. So um, I would actually like to play a little bit of a version of that game with you now. Patty, could we roll that video? This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Thank <laughs> you. 
many of you got the number correct? You saw how many passes. And how many of you did not see the bear? Okay. So this is actually, this video is an illustration of a concept that psychologists call selective attention or selective awareness. And the idea here is that uh, if you are looking at something visually, your, your eyes will take in like the light and the shadow and the visual concept. But if your brain hasn't been told that it's important, it won't interpret the signals for you to really kind of comprehend, to understand. So the idea here is that you see what you want to see until you're directed to look for something else. Uh, Father Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Upward, and in it he says, much of modern science recognizes the very real coherence between the seer and what is seen or even can be seen. Wisdom seeing has always sought to change the seer first, emphasis mine, and knows that what is seen will largely take care of itself. It is almost that, always that simple, and it is always that hard. The idea here is that if we can change those of us who are seeing, then what is seen will come into greater vision. So now I want you to apply that concept to how you see God. Where do you look when you look for God? And when you look for God, what do you see? Here at the table, we believe in the divine nature of every human being. We believe that every human is made in the image of God, is breathing the breath of God, and has the spirit of God living inside of them. But what about the image of God in the people that you don't see? Or the people that are right in front of you that you're not looking for? A few years ago, I was able to partake in an immersive learning experience where they brought a big busload of folks from the suburbs into the city. Uh, actually, it was one neighborhood over from mine, but most of the other people were uh, from the suburbs, mostly white. And they had us listen to some people whose life experiences were um, probably pretty different from ours. And I listened that day to the story of a woman who had spent most of her life as a sex worker. She told us her whole story from being trafficked at a very young age to trying to escape, to being caught in this cycle of addiction. And then eventually her story of rescue and rehab and recovery. And it was so powerful. I was listening and I had these two thoughts simultaneously. The first was, this story is incredible. This woman needs to share this story at church. She needs to share it at every church. We need to hear this woman's story. And at the same time, I had this thought, she's a little angry. She um, she's, seems really aggressive. She's crying a lot. She's kind of shouting. And it made me uncomfortable. And I kind of hate that that was my thought because I don't think that in this society we have a lot of space for the idea of women being angry. Uh, I wish I could count how many times in a job performance review I've been told that I'm abrasive, and yet that quality is liked in men. But here I was doing the exact same thing to this woman. Her delivery made me uncomfortable, and so I put her in a box, and I labeled her angry, aggressive, and I explained her away. I'm embarrassed that that was my experience that day. But when I did that, I missed what God was trying to speak to me through that woman's story. It was just her delivery that made me uncomfortable, and instead, I was looking to, to sort of Jesus to be my comforter. And the problem with looking to Jesus for comfort is that you're going to miss all the ways that he's very confrontational. Jesus doesn't do a lot of confronting the religious folks. He does a lot of confronting 
I said it wrong. Jesus doesn't do a lot of comforting the religious folks. He does a lot of confronting. Did I say it right this time? Okay, good. Um, If you're seeking comfort, it's natural that you're going to shy away from what feels uncomfortable because you're going to think that Jesus isn't there. But the thing is, I don't think that God speaks to the margins. I think he speaks to us from the margins. That blind man was completely marginalized in his society, literally on the side of the road, not allowed to be on the road, but pushed off to the side. But that day, when that blind man received sight, God chose to reveal God's self through this blind man to all of the disciples and all the Pharisees. And the ironic thing is that while the blind man received sight, it was the blindness in the disciples and the Pharisees that was exposed that day. They were the ones who were spiritually blind. So I want to ask you some tough questions. Which of the people on the margins of your world are you not seeing? Who are you missing? And in so doing, you're missing the spirit of God in them. Is it the mentally ill homeless woman? Is it the Trump voter? Is it the old white man preacher telling Beth Moore to go home? You have to figure out, as I kind of sat with this week, who have I othered? Who have I kind of pushed to the margins of my life? And it's the presence of God, the spirit of God, the breath of God in them that is missing from my vision of God. With them and their stories, the truth of God in their lives, that makes my vision of God more complete. And I can't get a full vision of God without them. So speaking of the old white man preacher uh, who told Beth Moore to go home, there's another blindness that was kind of brought to the fore this week, and that's the blindness of not recognizing the giftings of the Holy Spirit in women. Um, I grew up in a church where there were no women pastors. It wasn't something that was expressly taught from the front, uh, but in the very childlike way, you just kind of absorb it and soak it up and then you internalize it. So I got to college and I was standing um, in my, uh, on the floor of my dorm and I had just met a young woman who was also from Minnesota. I was really excited to meet her. And, and I asked Steph, what are, you, what are you studying? And she said, well, I'm a Bible theology major. And I said, what are you gonna do with that? which is a dumb question. I should know, I was an English major and everyone asked me, what are you gonna do with that? And I said, I'm not gonna teach, if that's your second question. Anyways, I asked this girl this question, which was dumb, I shouldn't have done it. And she said, I'm gonna be a pastor. And I think of that, I actually had to like close my mouth because what was about to come out was, but women can't be preachers. It's okay, we can laugh, that's funny, right? I use it as a sermon illustration. So clearly, like, God has brought me on a big journey in this area. I feel like I have received sight in this area because I'm standing on this side of things tonight. And this is my third sermon that I've got to preach at the table. And it just, it wouldn't have been even an idea in my mind when I was a kid. So I think that the, um, the, the, the truth about theological blindness that I realized this week is that it's hereditary. Theological blindness is hereditary. And so the greater than that God is telling through this particular part of my story of blindness to sight is this little girl right here. This is my daughter, Grace. And Grace is growing up in this church under this leadership, and Grace knows that if she wants to, when she grows up, she can be a pastor. And that is not something that was ever expressly told to me that I could do, but Grace knows very clearly that this is an option for her. 
Um, and sh and it's, uh, it's, that side of things is hereditary too because her grandmother is also a pastor. Um, I married into a family of pastors and I'm so grateful to give that legacy to my daughter. Actually, I think we might have pushed the pendulum a little bit too far because a couple months ago I was preparing to give the words of institution here and, uh, and Jack, my older son, said, Mom, can I, can I give the words with you tonight? And Grace overheard him and started laughing and she goes, oh, Jack, boys can't do the words of institution. <laughs> What kind of sight are you going to give your children in an area that you were blind before? Maybe not your children. Maybe you're going to give, the, give that sight to your nieces and nephews, or maybe your friends' kids, or maybe you're going to volunteer here in the table classrooms, and you're going to give sight to my kids. What kind of journey do you want these kids to go on, and what do you want them to see when they get the mud out of their eyes? Because the truth is, this transition from blindness to sight is not an instant event. At least it wasn't in this story. Jesus had the capacity to heal the blind man instantly. We saw that in other miracles. In other parts of the New Testament, Jesus heals instantly. So we know that's within his power. But it's a massive transition from blindness to sight. And so it makes sense this particular healing wasn't instant. Jesus actually gives the blind man the opportunity to participate in his own healing. Jesus puts mud on his eyes and then sends him to the pool, which means that all the way from the moment he got the mud on his eyes to get to the pool, the blind man is still blind, but he's walking that road. He's on that journey. I think one of the kinds of blindness that has more of a gradual progression is, an, is racial blindness. So I mentioned the kind of um, church that I grew up in. It, it sh you can guess by now I grew up in a very white suburban area of the cities. And uh, when I got to college, I was in um, a World Civ class. And one day, this gentleman walked into our classroom. This is Rodney Sisko. He is an extremely commanding presence. He stood 6'7" wearing a power suit like just he captured our attention um, and I remembered that day just this past year because um, Rodney Rodney passed away from cancer this year and so when he died I remembered this this moment when he walked into our classroom and the lecture that he gave us that day was actually an allegory that he told that challenged our perception of people based on their skin color Rodney was the first person in my life to tell me that as a woman with white skin in America, I was born with privilege. It deeply upset me. I remember leaving that class, walking straight back to my dorm, calling my family on the phone and saying, am I a racist? And, and the sad part about all of this and the truth behind the, like the clearest evidence of my own privilege is that I was able to shelve that experience and not start my journey toward healing that day. I have that privilege as a white woman in America. I didn't have to address how it made me uncomfortable. I was able to leave it. For almost seven years, I left it and didn't return to it. But I think that there's been a journey now. I think when I was, when I was ready and I started doing my work, I, rem, I, rem, I was reminded of that day that Rodney called my awareness to my own blindness. And then I started doing some work. Then I started looking into the racial disparities in her city. And I looked at the ways that I am complicit in systemic injustice, the way I've profited off of it. And so I've done some real work here, but the truth is, like, I've got a really long way to go. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I can see all the way. 
Um, Rachel Garden, I don't know if you're here, but you actually posted something this week that went really well with this. Um, the tweet you retweeted, Rachel, said that um, the work of anti-racism is calling out racism wherever you see it, including, and most importantly, in yourself. So this is a, this is a journey that we're on. And the greater than here is that I'm bringing my kids along with me on this journey. We talk really openly in our house about the privilege that their skin color affords. And we express to them how important it is that they spend every bit of that privilege to elevate somebody else's voice. And as a parent, I get it. There are areas that John and I are blind. There are areas that we are unknowingly and unwittingly passing on blindness to our kids. And that's why we're counting on you to help us raise them because you have more areas of sight than we have. And so we need you because you help increase vision for all of us. As I was um, deciding which stories to share tonight, I had some hesitancy and I shared my upbringing and sort of the church I grew up in. It was really different from the table. And I know that some of you share similar stories because I've talked with you. And I think that there's sort of a collective blindness that we've been healed from. Uh, but the reason that I was reticent to share these stories is because I didn't want my parents to hear this and to be hurt. But I was talking with John this week, my husband John, he's wonderful, sorry honey. Um, and he reminded me that when Jesus healed the blind man, Jesus did so without putting any of the blame on his parents. The disciples asked, remember, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. He didn't put any blame on the blind man's parents. And in the same way, when the blind man was healed and he came back to tell everybody, he didn't blame his parents for all those years of blindness. So for me to sort of put any blame on my family of origin or to hold that against them, that's the same trap the disciples fell into, looking for whose fault it is, who can we blame for this? And I think that's our challenge too. There's an area of sight you've received. We look to Jesus' example and say, look what God can do. We don't look for who to blame for the blindness. So in this table community, you're gonna find other blind people, people who are sort of stumbling and participating in their own healing we're all kind of moving from blind to blurry together. There isn't perfect vision after the pool, but you're gonna know that you're not alone. We, as a group, we're committed to helping other people sort of recognize areas that they're blind in, like the false narratives that you've believed about who you are and who other people are, to see your own privilege, to see that you have worth as a beloved child of God, that you belong in this community to see how God sees you. That's the areas of vision we want you to have. And it's one of the things I love about this community. I mean, I come here every week and with some of us have a joke about how many weeks in a row we cry at the sermons that are given here. Because I think that every week I come and I find out like another way that I'm blind and more of the scales sort of fall away. And you all are so gracious about that. You give me so much grace in the areas of blindness that I discover. Never once has anyone been mad at me about being blind. Just like we'd never be mad at somebody who walked in who was physically blind. So again, I think we need to think through the people on the margins for us, people who we might call blind. What are our attitudes towards them? Are we holding their blindness against them? Are we angry with them for the ways that they're blind? 
Because really what we need to do for the folks on the margins is what we do for each other. Here we come in and we put an arm around each other, we take each other's hands and we lead them to the pool. At least that's what's been my experience. Matt talks about this all the time, but the, the idea of you know, taking each other's hands and walking each other all the way home. That's what we do for each other here at the table. Just how can we come alongside you and help you have restored vision? And the thing about having full vision is that it actually makes things harder. When you can see all the ways that you are blind, that the world is, bl is blind, it makes you uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, getting healed isn't comfortable. Getting mud in your eyes is not going to be comfortable. But I don't want you to be afraid of the discomfort. Move towards it, because that's where Jesus is. And don't forget, you are not alone. We're just linking arms and moving that way together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful for all the ways that you have brought us sight. And we are thankful for a community of grace that receives us as we discover more areas of blindness. I pray, Lord, that you would continue our journey toward healing tonight. And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to extend a hand to someone else who's ready to start that journey with us. You are good, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Uh, I love Maggie's reminder that we are on a lifelong journey. A lifelong journey of slowly opening our eyes. A lifelong journey of healing. A lifelong journey where we will never arrive, friends. Not on this side of eternity. But it, she reminds us that it's a lifelong journey that we do together. We are created by a God who loves us to do this together. And I agree, Maggie. I think we do that imperfectly, but with commitment here at the table. So I thank you just for making me think about that passage just a little bit differently tonight. It was awesome. One of the ways, though, that I think we link arms and we, we, we walk this journey together is when we together take communion. When we meet here on Sunday nights and we break bread and we dip it into the cup and we're reminded of this Jesus, this God we love, and the transformational power of Jesus on the cross that allows us to open our eyes and to see, even if it's blurry, and to be changed. And your stories, Maggie, about your children are so wonderful because it shows us God's redemptive work generation over generation over generation. And it's how he brings his kingdom here. So the night before Jesus died, he was at a table with his friends and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you take this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So we invite you during the music to come forward as you'd like, and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. The gluten-free elements will be up front, right in the middle, the others on the side. And maybe while we're coming forward together, we can be reminded of what God can do 
what God is doing, how God is opening our eyes. So please together stand and we'll pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.